Since going public, have you ever considered expanding the asset classes that you'll invest in to include things that are not climate positive? Shut your mouth. No way. (laughs) No way would I do that. I didn't get into this to backtrack. Welcome to the first episode of Climate Positive, a podcast produced by Hannon Armstrong, a leading investor in climate solutions. I'm Chad Reed. I'm Hillary Langer. I'm Gil Jenkins. And in this series, we bring our unique and curious perspectives to host candid conversations with the leaders, innovators, and changemakers driving our climate positive future. In this inaugural episode, we could think of no one who's been focused longer and harder on driving us toward that climate positive future than our own CEO, Jeff Eckel. Over 35 years ago, Jeff Eckel discovered his mission. He read the seminal book, A Diet for a Small Planet, detailing the negative environmental impact of proteins from beef to beans. He's been a thoughtful eater ever since and has made a lifetime commitment to the environment, working to reduce harmful greenhouse gas emissions through technological, financial, and business model innovation in the power sector. Jeff charted his own path with stints at Booz Allen Hamilton, Time Energy Systems, the first U.S. energy service company, and Wardzilla Power Development, focusing on power plant development in the developing world. Before finding his way back to Hannon Armstrong, where he had previously lost his job due to an expiring federal tax credit. After returning to Hannon as CEO, he repositioned the firm to focus on energy efficiency. Since then, the company has witnessed unprecedented growth, expanding into wind, solar, and other sustainable infrastructure assets, and now has a market capitalization of nearly $5 billion. So with that, here is Jeff Eckel, the CEO of Hannon Armstrong, sitting down with Gil, Hillary, and myself. Jeff, welcome to the inaugural episode of the Climate Positive Podcast. Thanks, Gil. So we're going to cover a lot of ground here today, Jeff. Before jumping into your professional life, I thought it'd be interesting to start back in the early days. Tell us about your experience growing up in Ohio and how that shaped you as a person and as a business leader. Well, one of the uh, key things about growing up in Ohio in the 70s was when the Japanese car imports came in. And Ohio and Michigan was devastated by the transition from uh, American-made cars to Japanese-made cars. And friends lost jobs, dads lost jobs. And when people talk about disruption and change, it's good, it's great, and it hurts. It hurts people, it hurts families, it hurts communities. And that's one of the things that I definitely see in our business. Change is happening, but it's disruptive and it needs to happen. But there are human beings on the other end of this change that need to be taken care of. And I think the clean energy industry can do a better job in talking about how disruption hurts and facilitating the transition to a, uh, a much cleaner uh, energy system. When would you say that view of clean energy and sustainability really started to take shape? Was there a particular moment in your life where it really crystallized for you? Reading Francis Moore LePay's Diet for a Small Planet when I was 17, and on page 82, there's a bar chart of the British thermal units or BTUs per gram of protein. And it was a big bar for a cow, a smaller bar for a pig, uh, smaller still for a chicken and fish, and then you get down to a soybean, and it was a very efficient way to put protein in human beings. Became a vegetarian that day and um, I'm a vegetarian now. One of the stories I've heard you tell a few times that's really resonated with me is when you're coming out of college 
you've done a big study looking at efficiency and you're trying to make your first foray into the field. Tell us about that time. I wrote a paper that got published in a very prestigious journal, financial analyst journal. And I was so very proud of it because it showed how utilities were financially disadvantaging their shareholders by not embracing cleaner, smaller, distributed energy technologies, particularly energy efficiency. At the time, you had to type out the letter yourself, put it in an envelope, mail it. There's no email or anything like that. So I mailed it to 88 electric and gas utilities thinking they would think I was a smart young man. I got 92 rejections. Georgia Power was particularly enthusiastic in rejecting me, <laughs> four or five from them uh, alone. Um, and this is the same Georgia Power that has, in the last five years, written off two $10 billion behemoth investments that were idiotic in the beginning. They should have paid attention to me. So this is when you started at Hannon, around 1984? No, it was 82. So the professor 82. who co-authored the article with me got me an interview with a small utility power supply planning firm in Syracuse. And that's where I really learned the fundamentals of the supply side of electric utilities and economic dispatching, really the fundamentals, economics and finance of utilities. That company blew up and I went to DC and started to work for Booz Allen on the uh, demand side of the electric power sector. So doing studies for Pacific Gas and Electric, Southern California Edison about how they could improve the uh, energy efficiency in their system. And the fact that those first two jobs were on opposite ends of the electric power planning side was a fantastic uh, tutorial in how supply and demand works in the electric power industry. And it's definitely informed our business here at Hannon today. Great thing about Booz Allen is leaving Booz Allen, you get a, a very cool job. I got a very cool job with the very first energy services company, Time Energy Systems. And that lasted about four months. And uh, that's when I showed up at Mike Cannon's door and asked for a job based on a recommendation of an energy lawyer. We had done some wastewater treatment plants. There were some aspects of utility assets that were starting to develop. 87 was when PERPA, the Public Utility Regulatory sure. Policy Act, was enacted and allowed for the independent power generation and breaking the utility monopoly. So that was really a, a very innovative time in the industry, and it gave us a chance to, uh, to start developing a, a finance practice around clean energy. And I was very focused on clean energy just from the very beginning. I did not want to do natural gas plants or coal plants. We looked at some uh, biomass projects, some cogeneration projects, and ultimately had our most success with uh, solar projects. So you're doing well at Hannon. You're making some traction with the energy finance practice. A new decade is starting. Where did you go from there? At the time, uh, Hannah Armstrong was having a partnership issue, so it was not a very fun place to work. And um, I stumbled into meeting uh, an incredible leader, a Finnish guy, doing power generation in developing markets. And I had an itch to travel. The Ohio kid got on a plane his first day. I was in the Dominican Republic working on a, a busted deal um, in Puerto Plata. And I don't speak Spanish, so it was incredibly humbling. But we had a tremendous run of success uh, developing, financing, building, owning, operating power plants in developing countries that were having power outages. The one thing I learned, and these were oil-fired plants. That was the only option. But the one thing I learned is, People will get electricity. They'll do it in the 
lowest first cost way possible. Now, climate change was only just starting to get talked about in uh, scientific circles, but I absolutely knew that the efficiency of these systems were so much better for the people and and reduce the amount of oil being burned that uh, these were good environmental next steps for those those countries. And now those countries have taken even further steps and um, started to do wind and solar, ended up doing the very first wind project in Costa Rica that obviated the need for a lot of those oil-fired plants. I'm very proud of that project. So I think this takes us up to the late 90s part of your career. What's the next step in your journey? I had been traveling far too long and too much and um, knocked back on Mike Cannon's door and we started all over again. So you knew then that you wanted to refocus the business because of the opportunity? When I came back, I was completely, uh, I think, competent in how to think about it, what was going to make money and reduce carbon. So we were very insistent. I was very insistent at the time as we redid the management team. Uh, there'll be no climate negative uh, type investments. And uh, we started to track greenhouse gas emissions from every project. And um, that was a discipline I made sure that we had. At this point, I was early 40s and it was time to make a difference if I was going to do it. So, Jeff, in 2013, you took Han in public. Could you walk us through that decision and what some of the internal conversations were like surrounding that? Well, the decision was really a, a difficult one, and it, it took a year for us to come to it. It wasn't obvious when the idea was brought to us that this was a good idea. But we knew we had an awful lot of experience that the industry needed, and we knew finance and capital was a key enabler of the rapid adoption of clean energy. But as the team at Hannon does, we debate, we argue, we push numbers around, and um, we got to the conclusion that this was, one, a financially positive move for us and for our investors. We could be a good public company. And second, we were going to need a lot more capital if we were going to make uh, a difference in climate change. So once we got all that sorted out, it was a pretty easy decision then. When Hannon had its initial public offering, it was the first public company to invest exclusively in sustainable assets. At the time, how did you talk about this approach? You know, we talked about it in a lot of different ways. It was an incredibly difficult message to get out. The language of what we used at the IPO, it, we did talk about climate change, but we have gotten much better at communicating the story over time. Uh, climate positive investing is a very helpful uh, phrase. We did not have it. I'm not sure. Had we had it in 2013, it would have resonated. The concept of climate change was not at all on the minds of any of the 66 investors we met with on the IPO. Some you know, were openly hostile to the notion that we were going to make better risk-adjusted returns investing on the right side of the climate change line. We have. We will continue to. But the language has been very difficult to um, to put together. And we do not have a, a simple business and there isn't anything easy about climate change. Since going public, have you ever considered expanding the asset classes that you'll invest in to include things that are not climate positive? Shut your mouth. No way. <laughs> no way would I do that. I didn't get into this to backtrack. We actually, early on, we had a, a bit of a light pipeline and a midstream natural gas pipeline came in and it looked like a fantastic uh, investment. And I hadn't quite 
articulated in a public setting, a neutral to negative greenhouse gas emission uh, litmus test. Our next earnings call was a few weeks later. I did it right then. And there was no going back from there. I assumed everybody was thinking about the problem the same way at Hannon. We weren't all uh, completely on the same page. So I got it out there in the public domain and made sure we institutionalized it in our investment process. At the time of Hannon's IPO, the company had a lot of energy efficiency transactions and had figured out a way to make these programmatic so that the closings were quite efficient. How have Hannon's asset classes evolved since then? You're, you're right that we started out with a uh, preponderance of energy efficiency investments and we continued to dominate that market. Wind and solar were very much in a boom and bust cycle and we were very tentative about where to invest in boom and bust. And, and they were basically busting whenever the federal tax credits expired. So we were very cautious about that. I'd learned that lesson in 89 when the 11% solar energy tax credit went away. But eventually the cost declines in solar and wind accelerated so quickly, all of a sudden applications for solar and wind that had not been economic were astoundingly economic. So while the industry still benefits from tax credits, the fundamental economics of these technologies has come into the money, which to me makes it a very investable asset class for Hannon. There are lots of different ways to invest. Not all of them are that profitable for the investor and not all of them are accretive for our clients. So if we remember to stay focused on our clients' needs, and I would say investing in solar land was an example. There isn't anybody who thought that's what we were going to be investing in. turns out it's a very accretive transaction for our clients, and we continue to be the largest investor in land underneath solar projects uh, in the country. And we continue to focus on uh, solving a client problem with capital, and figuring out how to get their business to go just a little bit faster and a little bit more profitably while taking uh, appropriate risk-adjusted risks for our own account. What is that relationship like with the clients? How do you build strong partnerships? It's a good question because there's so much capital chasing these assets. What I have continually found is every business has a problem. Every client's got an issue. And, you know, early days, I've, you know, my prior experiences... I'd had some of those same problems and made some of the same mistakes they were making. And the ability to just listen and empathize with them about the business problem differentiates you from very earnest, but perhaps uh, less experienced people who have the same amount of capital. So fixing problems is a really good thing. I, I say constantly, I wish our bankers were as good as Hannah Armstrong at, at listening to our problems. Um, we do a really good job. And, you know, we've got such a, um, an experienced team of people who are listening to the client, solving the problem, and not looking at it as a transaction, but as a, as a client relationship. It's a small, I think, rather obvious distinction. Culturally, it's very different than the way banks and private equity firms work. A lot of companies, a lot of CEOs would say that they do the exact same thing. How has that become embedded in Hannon's culture? So we've worked on zippering with clients from this, me talking to the CEO or the head of a business unit all the way through the transaction teams, through the asset management teams, the legal teams. And you only 
can afford to do that. It's not cheap to do that kind of uh, relationship building. You only do that if you expect to do more than one transaction. And very few companies have that programmatic approach. There's no one transaction that makes us a lot of money, but the business is very strong precisely because we continue to do multiple transactions. And then there are people who didn't fit, who didn't like that culture. But people who have a passion for climate change investing, they're able to take some of the, um, the excesses that you see in, in other firms and subordinate that to the larger goal. I think if we didn't have a mission like that, yeah, we'd be just like everybody else, be a fight for money at the end of the day. And the fact that we're able to pay each employee as a shareholder with shares really also uh, ties compensation to the success of the business. You've described carbon dividend for years as an elegant and aerodynamic market solution to climate change. Why do you feel that way? You know, there's a tremendous amount of angst about capitalism right now and that free markets don't work. And a lot of that is deserved. I absolutely am a capitalist and absolutely believe that markets work more efficiently than anything else. The problem in climate change are unpriced externalities. Markets will work brilliantly if we send the proper price signals. So having a price on carbon will send those proper price signals. But again, going back to uh, whose ox is being gored and whose dad is losing their job in Ohio in the car business, if you're putting a tax on carbon, people are going to be paying more at the pump. They're going to be paying more on their electric bill and nobody wants to pay more get that. So you have to dividend the proceeds back and you can do it in a much more progressive fashion than uh, our current tax code, which will start to, to get at some of the social inequities that this country is, is wrestling with and, and economic uh, inequities. So a, a carbon dividend solves a lot of problems very efficiently. And uh, it's, it's one that I'm actually getting cautiously optimistic on. Now, you should ask me about capitalism and, and what I think needs to get fixed there so that younger people will trust uh, self-described capitalists. Well, so actually, the new administration has ambitious goals on both capitalism and climate change. If you found yourself with President Biden, what would you tell him to focus on? What I think this administration um, is starting to focus on is putting a price on carbon. That mm -hmm. will have a huge impact. From a, uh, a capitalism standpoint, having a more progressive tax code is absolutely fair. The um, ability of capitalists to make more money than any human should ever be able to spend in not paying for the social infrastructure that allowed capitalism to prosper to me is we're getting the benefit, but not, not paying the full cost of the privilege of, of working in the United States of America. That sounds a lot like Elizabeth Warren, Jeff. Yes. And Warren Buffett and a bunch of other right-minded uh, people who've thought through the problem of capitalism. I want to turn back. You you alluded to earlier the story of the IPO, and I think you've told this story to many of us that when you and Brendan Herron, Hannon Armstrong's first CFO, were on the IPO Roadshow, you got just one question on ESG. And, and by ESG, we mean environmental, social, and governance. It's, it's a term that's formally known as corporate social responsibility. 
But despite your best efforts to make it a compelling differentiator of Hannon's, you got just one question on it from investors. Last year, however, there are about 30 IPOs of companies that say they are exclusively focused on some ESG-related mission. And I think the market cap now of these 30 companies is about $100 billion. So I think the question is, what's changed? You know, why has ESG become such a focus for public companies and investors? And is this level of investor interest sustainable? I think this is my fourth green boom, uh, financial boom. The other three ended um, fairly ugly and, and quickly. This one is different. This one is much more resilient, much more sustainable, and uh, much more permanent. There has been a maturity of thinking among owners of capital, again, that we have to look holistically at capitalism. It's not just profit of the corporation as, as Milton Friedman articulated it in the 60s. There are many more dimensions to it. So the ESG movement, I think, is durable, it's real, and it's hot. There will be mistakes made, bubbles will burst. Um, and I think the thing that keeps Hannon on this mission and avoiding some of the uh, the missteps is a laser-like focus on carbon, using our carbon count metric and the investment discipline that that uh, forces us to to have, I think is crucial. I think Elon Musk and uh, what he's done with Tesla is just phenomenal. He is the brightest human being I've had the pleasure to watch um, uh, in my lifetime. Why he forgets about carbon and does Bitcoin uh, as a purchase for new Teslas. Um, Bitcoin is a hideously carbon intensive currency. Stay focused on carbon, Elon. Um, accept US dollars or accept any currency. Don't accept Bitcoin. And just for context, uh, Musk recently announced that Tesla had purchased $1.5 billion worth of Bitcoin, which is an asset now that, that sits on their balance sheet. And I'm really glad you mentioned carbon count, Jeff, because I want to touch on that next. You and Hannon developed this metric called Carbon Count, which measures the efficiency by which each dollar that we invest reduces carbon emissions. And you've made it a real focus of our investment team to source deals that have high carbon counts because you want us to be very laser focused on most efficiently reducing carbon emissions and thereby mitigating climate change. So going forward, what do you see as the emerging most promising new markets or investment opportunities that maybe have the highest potential carbon counts? that will most efficiently reduce our carbon emissions. Chad, I think you know, we've been primarily focused on the electric power sector. I think it is quite plausible that there is a flight path to a rapidly decarbonizing electric power sector in the US. And that will have tremendous um, ripple on effects through um, the electrification of virtually everything, starting with transport. So all very good signals and things to be optimistic about. There are other areas where energy and, and carbon is harder to um, get out of the system. Certainly there are aspects of transportation where a diesel engine is a phenomenal power plant to uh, propel machines, but um, there are aspects of transportation, there are aspects of industry, and there are aspects of ag. Um, the food system is one of the more inefficient. And, you know, frankly, that's how I got started when I was 17, was thinking about the efficiency of energy and food. We look at energy efficiency, wind and solar as a means to an end. Mm -hmm. The end is carbon. 
or other greenhouse gases like methane. And if we continue to focus on that, we're going to continue to find interesting uh, investment opportunities that are impactful on climate change and climate positive, but also have a higher societal and economic benefit, particularly once there's a price on carbon. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you've been the CEO of Hannon for over 20 years now, and the company is now at a $5 billion market cap. Is there anything else you could see yourself doing? Where do you personally go from here? I want to keep doing this until the board kicks me out. Um, The neat thing about financial services is you can continue to scale back activities and bring in fresh talent, younger talent, smarter talent. As long as I can make a constructive contribution, I want to be hanging around. But I also feel a little bit like general manager of a baseball team who's got a loaded farm system. We've got uh, mm. great players at the single A level, the double A level, the triple A level. And with our, our new realignment for growth, we've got a new major league lineup. And it is exciting to watch um, uh, this organization develop even through such a terrifically disrupted year as 2020. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hannah Armstrong is coming out of this this year so much stronger than we went into it. As a leader, that is absolutely the most exciting thing that you see is that things you used to do, others have done it, done it better, faster, smarter, and you get to go on and think about new problems. As for what I'll be thinking about, it's probably going to be the same thing I was thinking about at 17. How do we make things more efficient? How do we improve the environment? I can't, can't not do it. Thanks, Jeff. So now I want to move to the hot seat. You know, it wouldn't be a podcast on climate change if there weren't a hot seat, right? So first off, please fill in the blank. The best decision I ever made was... Any decision with enough time is a good decision. I have an adage that I've learned that nothing is ever all good or all bad. And it's very liberating when you realize that you can make a bad decision, but there's going to be something good that comes out of it. Dithering, that's the problem. So I'll, t- I'll say every decision is a good decision with enough Interesting. time. Well, you kind of stepped on my next one, which is if I could do it all over again, I would. I wouldn't change a thing. Uh, I've been fired three or four times in my career, learned a ton from every, every one of them. Uh, not easy, not, not fun, and certainly very expensive to get fired but they always led to something else. You just keep working and you're going to get another job eventually if, if, you're, uh, if you're hustling. The most important lesson I learned in 2020 was? I think that leadership really matters in a time of crisis. Hannon has not had a lot of crises. Uh, we did very well in the financial crisis because we largely had the U.S. government as, a, as an obligor. We have not had very many crises. I was definitely challenged this year with, with COVID, with awakening of racial uh, injustice in this country, and then the rise of fascism uh, that we saw um, January 6th, obviously a couple of years before that as well. I think I had a pretty good year in 2020, and I'm generally pretty modest and don't say that, but I, I have to give credit to leaders who have gotten their organization through a crisis. It is as stressful a thing to lead through a crisis as I can ever imagine. First couple months, I wrote an email to the team virtually every day. 
um, it helped bind us together, but it helped me express what this organization was going through, what this country was going through. I remember the very first time I heard 200,000 deaths from COVID were possible. And I was struck, wait, that's four times what we lost in Vietnam. Vietnam was one of the defining uh, events of my childhood. Just shocking. You know, we're going to get to 600,000 here easily. You know, what we've seen in Kenosha and, and uh, Minneapolis, uh, Atlanta, um, and so many other cities that haven't made the, the headline news absolutely has to change us all. The fact that climate change rose to the uh, surface here and uh, during this year to me is astonishing, but it goes to the point of if you stay in business long enough, your time will come. I, I think Hannah Armstrong's time came in 2020. So we're now going to shift to overrated or underrated. I'm going to say a name or a concept or a place, and, and you tell me whether it's overrated or underrated. And please tell us why, if you'd like. Jeff Bezos. Underrated. There isn't anything that he's done that hasn't been hugely successful, and it took a hell of a long time to do it. His persistence and the number of skeptics at an online bookseller really needs that. <laughs> Absolutely underrated. There's a lot of things I think he could have done better, but he's underrated. Al Gore. Way underrated. Uh, I voted for Bill Clinton the first time to, uh, in order to have Al Gore be vice president. He's done a phenomenal job. Taylor Swift. Uh, 1989, that record is still underrated. A lot of her other ones, I mean, she issued two this year. One was phenomenal. The other was garbage. But my cat, completely underrated. Well, I like both of them this year. And her documentary on Disney Plus was actually really good too, I thought. Annapolis, Maryland. Oh, overrated. Nobody should move here. It's terrible. Don't come here. It's great. Unless you're a restaurateur. Then you should come to Annapolis. And then finally, to me, climate positive means? Uh, this will seem a little funny, but um, birds. Birds are the barometer of environmental health, and they're the most astonishing creatures, particularly migratory birds. And I'm an amateur bird watcher. I've been all over the world uh, looking at birds. You know, somebody once told me that a really good public policy analysis tool was to ask yourself, is this public policy good for children or bad for children? Forces you to take a very long view on things. I would say the same thing about birds. Is this policy good for birds or bad for birds? They don't have a voice. They're not going to tell you anything. They're just going to die by the billions. That's what it means to me, Chad. Awesome. Well, thank you very much, Jeff. This has been a fascinating conversation. Always great to sit and well, chat. I doubt that, but um, thank you for, uh, for asking good questions. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Jeff. Bye-bye. And that was Jeff Eckel, the CEO of Hannon Armstrong. Climate Positive is produced by Hannon Armstrong. Tell us what you thought about the conversation. You can send us show ideas by tweeting at us at Hannon Armstrong or send us a note at climatepositive at hannonarmstrong.com. If you like the show, feel free to give us a rating or share with a friend. It helps others learn about the show and our climate-positive mission. I'm Chad Reed, and this is Climate Positive.